Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, help us, teach us to be merciful as you are merciful. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Story is told of a business owner who had identical twin sons. These two brothers were inseparable. They dressed alike and thought alike. They were best friends. Some believed that their extraordinary closeness was the reason. They never married. When their father died, the twin brothers took over the family business and continued its success. One day, when the store was busy, busier than normal, one of the brothers absentmindedly laid a dollar bill on the countertop in the back of the store, by the back door. He had received a dollar a little earlier from a sale, but he hadn't had time to put it in the cash register. Later in the day, he remembered that he had put that dollar bill on the countertop by the back door in the back of the store. So he returned to get it, to put it in the cash register where it belonged. But it was gone. He asked his brother if he had seen it, but the brother said that he had not seen it. A few minutes later, he asked his brother again, but this time with an obvious note of suspicion. His brother became angry and defensive. He even began to return accusations at his brother about the dollar. For the next several days, every time they tried to discuss the matter the conflict just grew worse. Each, each of them leveled vicious and destructive charges and countercharges against the other. Eventually, their business partnership dissolved. And they built a divider wall down the middle of the store. And now they had two competing, competing businesses next door to each other. This nasty family feud continued for three decades. One day, about 30 years later, a car with an out-of-state license plate pulled up in front of the two stores. A well-dressed man entered one brother's shop and asked how long the store had been there. And learning it had been there about 30 years, the stranger said to the old man, to the brother, one of the brothers, I need to settle an old score with you. He said, some 30 years ago, I was out of work, drifting from place to place, and I happened to get off a boxcar in your town, and I had no money, I hadn't eaten for days. As I was walking down the alley behind your store, I looked in the back door, and I saw a dollar bill on the countertop. Everyone was busy. They didn't see me. So I slipped through the door, took the dollar bill. And that act has weighed on my conscience ever since. And I finally decided that I would never be at peace until I came back and faced up to my sin and made amends. When the stranger had finished his confession, he was amazed to see the old store owner shaking his head in deep sorrow 
and weeping. When the old man gained control, he took the gentleman by the arm and he led him to the store next door and he asked him to tell its owner the same story. The stranger complied. He told the same story to the second store owner who looked just like the first. And when he had finished, there were two men now weeping with regret. Were these two brothers churchgoers? Were they professing Christians? They they very well may have been. They could have been. Whatever their profession of faith, though, their merciless, unforgiving spirits revealed hearts that had never understood the mercy of God. According to Jesus, if they had known God's mercy, they themselves would have been merciful. And they would not have wasted those 30 years in bitterness. The fifth beatitude is the perfect remedy for those of us who might be caught in bitterness. It's the cure for all resentment. You may be bitter towards someone in your own family. Or towards someone in this church. Or toward a former business partner. If you have problems similar to these two unhappy brothers, this beatitude, this verse, could lead to your liberation. Your freedom from bitterness won't come through a change in someone else's heart. It will come when you, by God's grace, put mercy and forgiveness into your own heart and allow God to work that through you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive God's mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? If the blessings come to the merciful, what does it mean to be a merciful person? The basic idea behind the word translated merciful is pity and compassion. A merciful person is someone who provides relief to the miserable. It could be that they're miserable because of someone else's sin. It could be that they're miserable because of their own sin. It could be that they're miserable because they're in a fallen world. It doesn't much matter why they're miserable. Mercy gives attention and aid to those in misery. Mercy gives attention and aid to those in misery. Mercy is compassion in action. It's pity put into practice. A close synonym for mercy is compassion. But mercy isn't simply feeling compassion. Mercy isn't just having compassion in your chest, in your heart. Mercy is doing compassion. Mercy exists when something is done to alleviate distress or misery. Jesus made this clear when He told the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
in Luke chapter 10. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. There's that word pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three of do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, Jesus asks. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The one who showed mercy to him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The one who loved his neighbor was the one who actually had mercy on the miserable traveler. And notice that Jesus doesn't say at the end, go and feel likewise. He doesn't say, go and have this same kind of sentiment in your heart toward miserable people. He says, go and do likewise. Mercy is compassion in action. It's pity with feet. So we must never imagine that we are merciful Because we feel merciful. We feel compassionate towards someone in need. That's not mercy. Mercy is active goodwill. Mercy is the kind of goodwill that God has shown to you. That He has shown to us in Christ. The mercy of God moved Him into action on our behalf. On your behalf. He gave His only begotten Son to the world. And this was an act of deep, mysterious, inexplicable mercy. Mercy is something that is done, not just felt. This principle is well understood by another story that is told of the 19th century preacher who came upon a man on the road whose horse had just died. As the preacher arrived on the scene, he found a crowd of onlookers expressing empty words of sympathy for the man who had just lost his horse. One man in particular was speaking the loudest about how sorry he was for this man's situation. So the preacher stepped forward. He looked at the loudest sympathizer and he said, I'm sorry, five dollars. How much are you sorry? And then he passed the hat around to the onlookers. True mercy demands action. But you see, mercy in Scripture is not just Pity 
put into practice. Pity with feet. It's not just compassion in action. It's that and much more. You see, that is something that the world can kind of do. Maybe not from a pure heart, but we see the world being able to do that. So in Scripture, mercy is that and more. When Jesus says merciful in Matthew 5, 7, He's referring specifically to people who forgive others who wrong them. A key component of mercy in the Bible is forgiveness. In fact, forgiveness is right there at the core of biblical mercy. The most inspiring example of the forgiving aspect of mercy in Scripture is the mercy that Joseph showed his brothers. That he extended to his undeserving brothers. Joseph was a lad. His brothers had planned to kill him. The only reason they didn't murder Joseph was that just as they were ready to kill him, a caravan approached. And they decided that it would be better to sell Joseph and get a little money than to kill him. Years later, when Joseph's starving brothers came to Egypt to buy food from Joseph, though they didn't know it, they were literally at his mercy, weren't they? And Joseph showed them exactly that. He extended them to them mercy. Godlike mercy. Mercy that only somebody connected to God can show. There was compassion as Joseph wept over his miserable brothers. He wept over their misery. There was action as Joseph met their needs and provided them provided for them far more than they deserved, than they even expected. And there was forgiveness as Joseph refrained from giving them what they deserved, even though it was in his power to do so. Joseph forgave them and restored them to his favor, saying, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You see, that's why I say that only somebody connected to God can show that forgiving aspect of mercy because you have to see what God is doing. You have to see it through God's eyes, through the biblical lens of God's sovereignty and the way He works in history. Compassion leading to action leading to forgiveness. That's the progression of mercy in Joseph's dealing with his brothers. Compassion, action, and forgiveness. How is this kind of mercy possible? Is it, how can we be merciful like that? The merciful person is merciful because he knows his own need for God's mercy. You see, to to achieve this kind of mercy, this merciful spirit, you have to start at at the beginning of the Beatitudes, right? And work your way up. It's a whole package deal, these Beatitudes. The merciful person is merciful because he knows his own need 
for God's mercy. He understands the weakness of others because he understands his own weakness, particularly his own spiritual weakness, his own weakness before God. And this understanding leads him to compassion that leads to forgiveness. It produces pity that leads to pardon. The merciful person forgives others because God has forgiven him. Not only that, he forgives others as God has forgiven him. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says, for such are the ones who have received God's mercy and will receive God's mercy. The reason Jesus can say that the merciful are blessed is that they and they alone are the ones who have experienced, received God's mercy and who will receive, experience God's mercy. If you're truly merciful, it's only because you have experienced mercy from God. And if you're truly merciful, you're blessed because you will continue to obtain God's mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. They shall receive mercy. They shall have mercy shown to them, given to them. Now the word they in the phrase is emphatic. Blessed are the merciful, for they, they alone, will be shown mercy. The only ones who can expect to receive God's merciful forgiveness on the last day are those who were willing to show merciful forgiveness to others. This is a difficult truth, but other scriptures confirm it. James 2.13 says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Think about that. As a preacher, I'm at a loss for ways to help you understand the significance of that. They speak for themselves. Listen again, James 2.13. Judgment without mercy from God will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 6, just one chapter after the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Flip over there in in your Bible to Matthew 6 and look at verses 14 and 15. These are weighty words from the mouth of Christ. Matthew 6.14 For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15 But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is there a more sobering warning in all of Scripture? Let me know if there is. On the one hand, we need to make sure that we don't blunt the force of this warning by explaining it away and looking for ways around it. Okay, We've we got to make sure we don't do that. On the other hand, though, we need to make sure we understand what, both what Jesus is saying and what He is not saying. Jesus is not saying that we are supposed to earn 
God's mercy by performing acts of mercy toward others. We don't merit God's forgiveness by forgiving. Such an idea would, is in disagreement with all of Scripture. The Bible teaches that our salvation, our forgiveness from God is by grace alone, through faith alone. And even the faith is ultimately the work of God. Plus, if you had to earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others, none of us would ever be forgiven because none of us would ever absolutely meet this standard. Our forgiveness is not perfect. None of us forgives purely, perfectly. So none of us could ever merit God's forgiveness by the purity of our forgiveness. And it would have to be perfect, right? At at least. No, what the fifth beatitude means is that God's true children will themselves be merciful. And if they continue to be merciful, if their response to God's mercy is to be merciful, they show themselves to be true recipients of God's mercy. They show themselves to be those who have received God's mercy with lasting, saving faith which means that they will receive God's mercy in the end. Showing mercy to others is evidence that you have received mercy from God. We need to, we need to think about this mercy that it's talking about uh, eschatologically, which means in terms of what's going to happen at the end. It's future tense. He's saying that those who are merciful will receive God's mercy on the last day. But it's not saying that our showing mercy to others comes first. No, we know that we are able to be merciful to others because God showed us mercy here. So He shows us mercy at the beginning of our spiritual walk with Christ. And then we show mercy as we walk in the Spirit He's given us Showing that we are believers and on the last day, He will be merciful to us. That's how it works. God's love, God's mercy always comes first. It always awakens us so that we can live out these principles. Therefore, this beatitude presents a test to the professing Christian. It presents a test to everyone here. A hard test, a convicting test. And here's the test. If you show no mercy toward those who are in distress, and if you show no merciful forgiveness to those who have wronged you, you are not a Christian. You have not experienced God's mercy. I know that's a, that's a strong statement. But I don't know how we can get away from it. It's what Jesus is saying. Notice I didn't say that we become Christians by showing mercy to others. So, hey, do you want to be a Christian? Well, we'll show mercy to others and then God will be merciful to you. That's not what I'm saying. That's not how it works. Being merciful is not how you get saved. It's not how you enter into Christ. Doing the things that Christians are supposed to do does not and cannot make you a Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones Put it this way, a Christian is something before he 
does something. Christian is something before he does something. God makes you a believer before you start acting like a believer. But what Jesus said is still true. If you have no desire to forgive those who have wronged you, your Father will not forgive your wrongs against Him either. That's just what Jesus says. If you are unwilling to extend mercy to the people in your life who need your mercy, you can't claim to be a believer. If you have no pity and compassion on the miserable in your life, including those who have sinned against you, especially those who have sinned against you, you have not truly experienced the free, inexplicable, mysterious compassion and merciful forgiveness of God in Christ. So, so far, we've seen that there are two aspects to biblical mercy. The first aspect of mercy is merciful compassion, we'll call it. Merciful compassion gives attention and aid to the miserable. It's, it's more of a general category. The second aspect of mercy is merciful forgiveness. Merciful forgiveness forgives as God forgives. Both aspects are necessary. Both ought to characterize the Christian. All believers have both merciful compassion and merciful forgiveness. The parable of the Good Samaritan that I read earlier drives home the, the necessity of merciful compassion. Jesus told the story because if you look in the context, the religious leaders of his day were not living out the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. They were not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were not loving their neighbors as themselves. The fact that the priest and then the Levite, remember in the parable, the fact that they turned away from the miserable, needy man proved that they did not love their neighbor as themselves. They failed to fulfill the law that they taught. They were lost. They did not know God, even though they were the preachers and teachers of Israel. But the Samaritan's act of mercy showed that he did love his neighbor as himself. It demonstrated that he was living within the gracious parameters of God's law. He was truly a lover of God and man. If we are impassive or callous to the needs of others, to human need, and if we refuse to do anything about it, we need to take a, a good long look at our profession of faith in Christ Jesus. John says it best in 1 John 3.17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? That's the test. How do you score on that test? Do you have merciful compassion on the miserable? True belief is never divorced 
from attitude and action. But the most difficult aspect of mercy, biblical mercy, is merciful forgiveness. And here's where the true test takes place. If you refuse to forgive, you can't believe that you're forgiven by God. That's a frightening thought, I know. I I think that it's supposed to have an element of, of fear there for us. It's supposed to help us fear God in the right way. It's not always, God's word is not always comfortable. Being in God's presence is not always comfortable, right? It's scary to think that we cannot be truly forgiven. We cannot know that we are walking in God's forgiveness unless we have forgiving spirits. But it's true. Because when God's grace comes into your heart, it makes you merciful. It begins to make you merciful. A merciful person. Your forgiving spirit is evidence that you've been forgiven. So if you're refusing to be merciful, there's only one reason. You don't understand the grace of God in Christ. Now you may think that I'm stating this too strongly or maybe just trying to be provocative. But I've saved a passage where Jesus says it more strongly than I've said it yet. Matthew 18. The end of Matthew 18 is where Jesus tells the parable of the unmerciful servant. Some Bible headings call it the the parable of the unforgiving servant. Others, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Either way is correct because the servant's failure to forgive was a failure to show mercy. I won't read the whole parable. You're going to read it in in preparation for your small groups. But I'll remind you what happens, and then I'll read the ominous ending. The servant in the parable owed his master an immense amount of money. In today's currency, he owed him millions of dollars. Some have estimated over a billion. The point is, the debt was impossible to repay. So the servant pleaded with his master to forgive his debt. And and with astonishing compassion, the master does forgive his debt. The entire thing. Incredibly though, this wicked servant went out from his master who had just forgiven him of millions or maybe billions of dollars of debt. He goes out and he finds one of his fellow slaves who owed him just a few thousand dollars. And he grabs him by the throat. And he says, pay me what you owe me right now. Give me the the two grand that you owe me right now. The debtor begged this wicked servant for the same kind of forgiveness that he had received for more time. But instead of showing mercy, the wicked servant threw his debtor, his fellow slave, who was his debtor, into prison. And when the other slaves heard about this, what did they do? They went to the master and they reported this injustice. And the master summoned the wicked servant, whom he had forgiven, 
And he said to him, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Keep that in mind. The master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. In the next verse, Jesus comments, This is how my heavenly Father will treat you, will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Not just from your words, but from your heart. I don't think I could say it any stronger than that. These are hard words, but they are mercifully hard. They're for our benefit to hear them, to let them sink in, to let them do their work to let the Holy Spirit do His work alongside the Word. The Lord here is warning the religious person who attends church, who can recite the correct answers, who knows his theology, who leads an outwardly moral life, but who holds a death grip on grudges. Jesus warns the one who will not forgive his relatives or his former business associates, regardless of their pleas. He warns the one who harbors hatred, who nourishes bitterness and cherishes animosities. Such a person had better take stock of his life. Now, Some words of qualification are in order. Again, we don't want to explain away any of these words from Scripture, from Jesus, from James, just because they're difficult or they're unsettling and we don't like to feel that way. At the same time, we need to make sure we're not hearing what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that, you, if, that if you're a true follower of Him, then your forgiveness of others will be pure and perfect just as God's forgiveness is. That will never happen in this life. So this warning is not for those who continue to do battle with lingering bitterness, even though they've forgiven their offender. The fact that you have forgiven and continue to forgive is a sign of God's grace. Even if your forgiveness is imperfect, and occasionally you get a glimpse of just how imperfect it is. This warning is not for those who struggle, genuinely struggling in the Spirit, the way Paul struggles in Romans 7, to forgive. It's not for those who experience setbacks in their ability to show mercy to evildoers. No, this warning is for those who have no real desire to forgive. Those who are making no progress in developing a spirit of forgiveness toward those who have wronged them. Those souls are in danger. Those souls need to repent. The overall lesson is if, if we're Christians, we can and we will we must forgive. 
however imperfect our forgiveness may be. We cannot live like the miserable twins, the twin brothers who divided over a dollar bill. Forgiveness is possible for the most grievous of wounds. If you're a Christian, regardless of the wrong done to you, you can forgive. And you can work toward more and more forgiveness. Less and less resentment. By God's grace, you can forgive the wrongs done to you by your parents. By God's grace, you can forgive the wrongs done to you by your brothers and sisters in Christ. By God's grace, you can forgive the wrongs done to you by your boss. For your own soul's sake, you can and must. The fifth beatitude, like all of the beatitudes in Matthew 5, help us figure out two things. First, it helps us determine the authenticity of our faith. And second, it helps us to determine the health of of our spiritual lives. In the spotlight of Matthew 5, 7, how does your faith hold up? Are you merciful? Are you growing in mercy? Are you forgiving? Is there evidence that you have experienced and are experiencing God's mercy? Or do you hold grudges as your treasured possession? As you're precious. If your life lacks mercy. Toward those who have offended you especially. The problem is. And here's the problem. Here's the root problem. The problem is that you are unaware. Of how seriously you have offended God. I'm not being insensitive to the wrongs done to you. But. We're going to take the words of Christ seriously. We have to face this fact that if you lack mercy toward those who have offended you, you lack understanding of how seriously you have offended God. You've not yet come to the important realization that no one has ever offended you as greatly as you have offended God. And it's not even close. If you lack mercy and forgiveness, then you need to go back to the beginning and become poor in spirit. Back to the beginning of the Beatitudes. And become poor in spirit. Then you need to mourn over your sinfulness. And this will lead to a Christ-like meekness before God and before men. And then it will lead to a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that only those in Christ can experience. And then it will lead you to merciful compassion and merciful forgiveness. When we receive God's mercy, our response will be to give it away. When you receive God's mercy, your response will be to give that same kind of mercy away. The Spirit of God will compel you to do it. So if you need to develop more 
compassion, more forgiveness. If you're short on mercy, the place to start is confession. I told you the problem. Now, so you're, where you start is confession. Confess that problem. Confess that shortcoming. Confess your resentment to God. Admit your need to Him first. Acknowledge your iniquity. Confess the war that rages in your heart. Talk to God about your bitterness. He already knows about it. And don't leave his presence until you've got his help, until you've got that blessing. Blessed are those who are merciful. Wrestle with God the way Jacob wrestled with God for the blessing. In this case, for the blessing of a merciful spirit. Wrestle wrestle with him all night if you have to. Repent of your slowness to forgive. Ask God for more compassion. Ask him to show you just how great his mercy is toward you. Beg him for help and struggle to be merciful. Ask and seek and knock for God-like forgiveness. God-like forgiveness that only the Spirit of God can produce in you. And in all of your asking and seeking and knocking, never take your eyes off of the mercy of Christ. That's where your power comes from Christ, the, the risen Christ, His resurrection power. So keep your eyes on the risen Christ who had mercy on you. Keep God's pity and compassion that He showed you. Keep that in sharp focus. Your power to be merciful is the power of the gospel in you, working through you. Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The power of the gospel enables you to be merciful. And the good news is this. God saw you in your pitiful state. He saw you in your misery. He saw you in your sins. You were helpless like the man who had been robbed in the parable. Robbed and beaten on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And God was the ultimate good Samaritan. Even though your helpless condition was entirely your fault and your responsibility, even though your sins were against Him, He loved you and had compassion on you. And He put His compassion into action. It didn't just stay within the Trinity. They didn't just think about it for eternity. They put it into action. He sent His Son, the Father sent His Son to die on a cross for our sins. He didn't have to do this, but why did he do it? Because he is rich in mercy. And as Christ hung on the cross, what did he say? How did he pray? How did he pray for those who put him up there? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. On the cross, Jesus cried out for the mercy of, of his persecutors, of his offenders. There has never been a greater act of mercy 
than the cross of Jesus Christ. So how merciful are you? Are you growing in this kind of God-like mercy? Not the, not the mercy that the world can show, but the mercy that we see in Scripture that God shows us. Do you want this mercy? Do you want God's mercy? In Numbers 23, when Balaam was thinking of death, he said in Numbers 23.10, Let me die the death of the righteous. Let me die the death of the right. Balaam was not a righteous man, but he, he was hoping that he could die the death of the righteous. And it's been said of Balaam that he wanted to die like the righteous, but he did not want to live like the righteous. Do you want to receive God's mercy in Christ without having to show mercy to others? If so, it won't work. Are you living like the merciful? If so, you will get to die the death of the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain God's mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy in Jesus, your steadfast love, your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness to your promises. We thank you for putting your mercy into action by sending your son to suffer for us, to take on our iniquities, as Isaiah 53 says. Help us to respond with that same God-like mercy toward others. Help us to grow. Give us the power of your spirit. Give us your grace to grow in that kind of mercy, that kind of compassion, that kind of pity toward others. And may we never think that we are showing more mercy to others than you have shown to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.